welcome back, guys. Thanks for joining us on episode three of History and the Horse. Where we tell stories about history and famous horses. Yeah, pretty self-explanatory title, but thanks yes. for joining us. Yes, and we usually enjoy a lovely cocktail. I feel like we're, we're kind of the, uh, what commercial is it? Where the guy's dancing on the sidewalk and he's like, this video is going to get tens and tens of views. <laughs> Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. <laughs> yes, we Thanks have a website. Listening. Yes, It's we called historyandthehorse.com. Yep. As Mom. You can get some more information about our episodes there as well as the cocktail recipes that we prepared for each episode that in some ways loosely relate to one of the stories that either Lisa or I are telling. Yes. And today's, it relates to yours, doesn't it? It does. It does. It ties in because my story involves the first woman who rode solo across North America from San Francisco to New York City. This took her 300 plus days in the saddle or promoting herself around, which we'll get to in later detail. But this cocktail would be fabulous for anybody going on long trips or without refrigeration because... There is a clarification process used, and you were horrified when I started making this thing. I was totally horrified. I mean, you've done a fair amount of experimenting in our kitchen, and it usually turns out great. But when you poured milk directly <laughs> into what looked like an already delicious cocktail, and I watched it legitimately curdle. Questions were asked. I was concerned. I was I was concerned. Questions were asked. So here's how this works for those of you who are curious. We're calling this the Lady Ellen, which is the name of the horse in my segment of today's episode. And it starts with bourbon, rum, lemon juice, and we sweetened it with some maple cream. That was delicious. Maple syrup. So this felt only right. You add milk to that. And anybody who's ever mixed milk and lemon juice knows this sounds like a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. That's usually a mistake in the baking process. It's usually process. a mistake, right. However, if you filter that, if you filter out that mix after it sits for a little while and has a chance to start filtering, once you filter it, the curds essentially build up and act as a bit of a filter for themselves, which is how we took this very swampy looking cocktail and made it this very clear, slightly yellow substance it That's is delicious crystal clear way. it is the smoothest cocktail i have ever had and it is delicious so despite the weirdness that went on in our kitchen i highly recommend trying it it's basically a preservation technique so you could make this stuff for gifts gift it out you could clarify really anything involving acid okay any Ooh. sort of form of lemon juice lime juice that would cause the curdling reaction would work not sure how it worked for our vegan friends so sorry for our plant-based people i'm not sure how that would go yeah is it still vegan if you filter it all out i don't think this recipe is vegan no. so sorry sorry to yeah. our dozens and dozens of listeners all who may five or may of not you. be vegan <laughs> you're being generous with dozens <laughs> yes all five. thank you thank you for coming back if you have yes. if not welcome yep welcome to the show we have, we've got great stories today i know you have an awesome story to tell me that I'm really excited to hear and I'm very excited to tell you mine. Yes, I'm excited to hear it. You want to jump into yours? I would love to jump into mine. I am taking my inspiration from Veterans Day that just passed. So Perfect. first, thank you for your service to all of our veterans, including your father and grandfather, yep. my grandfather, who actually fought in the Korean War. And that's which the subject is, for your... That is a subject for my history in the horse because... Perfect. The United States Marine Corps actually had their own equine marine. Really? Yes. Okay, I'm and, intrigued. And her name was Sergeant Reckless. Okay, that is the greatest name I've ever heard. Period. Yes. <laughs> and I am going to tell you her story. All right. Tell All me right. your story. So first, let's start at set the scene. The Korean War started in 1950 and ended around 1953. It's often considered the Forgotten War because it's sandwiched between World War II and Vietnam that both kind of drew the attention of the American public. And it was also more of a conflict or United Nations police action 
because North and South Korea were divided and the Soviets backed North Korea. We in the West were backing South Korea. And when the North invaded the South, the UN got involved. So that's how we ended up there. Makes sense. So, I mean, I think that a war is anytime people shoot at each other and die, but I guess... That's really, really broad. That is. So Hatfields and McCoys. Okay. Okay. (laughs) On (laughs) on the world stage, how about that? Yeah, on a global level, that's fine. Okay. On a global... When when countries fight. For a sustained period of time. Yes. With lots of troopage. Troopage. (laughs) No. That's perfect. (laughs) When the the stormtroopers go. No. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, when the Death Star (laughs) destroys Alderaan, it is a war. That's a war, but like if you're just shooting, okay, we. Bad topic. Let's just let's just move <laughs> Moving on. on. I'm sorry it was for anyone I insulted. Than it was a conflict. It's well, we call it in America at least we call it the Korean War. Well, so and Staten Island has the Korean War Veterans Memorial Parkway. Oh, scandal. Yes. Oh, deep scandal. Exactly. You're right. It's not the Korean conflicts. <laughs> the <laughs> Korean Parkway. I'm going to say that to you every time we drive to your mother's now. Oh, great. We got to do that on Friday. It'll be great. <laughs> Okay, so that's where it happened. Yep. But our story starts a little bit before then. Okay. The original owner of our horse, because she was born in Korea, Mm -hmm. she was a Korean horse that the military acquired. He was eight years old when he was taken to the racetrack outside of Seoul, and he saw our our horse's mother race. Okay. Her name was Achim Hai, which means flame of the morning. And he was completely captivated by horse racing. And how old was he when he was eight at the time? Okay, so he was just a kid. Yes, and he was drawn to the racetrack and he aspired to be a jockey and a trainer, which he managed to do, even so far as he got to ride her in a few races. Oh, that's really cool. So that was really very fairy tale. However, during World War II, he was able to get work, use it, or forced to work to supply. Um, the POW camp that was in the Japanese POW camp that was in Korea. And he used the horse to transport the, um, he used the, to transport their supplies. So he kept our American POWs fed in the prison camp. So when the camp was liberated, he had already been saving his payment to hopefully purchase her at the end. But when the camp was liberated, as thank you for keeping the POWs alive, they signed over her ownership papers. Oh, cool. So he became the owner of the horse. That's very fairy tale. Yes. So she helped deliver supplies. Like what kind of supplies would she have delivered? I guess to? they were they were supplying rice gotcha. and whatever other bits of food that they kept used to keep prisoners alive. I'm sure it wasn't. That's five-star. some kind of cross training. Yes, absolutely. She was a, I guess, a very diverse horse which was good because her baby needed that yeah came in handy later right so after he became her owner he did breed her to his friend stallion in the hopes of getting another racehorse and in 1948 a little red filly was born Mm. he named her the same thing flame of the morning she had a big white stripe on her face and three white socks (laughs) And unfortunately, here's where you mentioned Disney before. We got a little bit more Disney because her mommy died. Oh, no. Between about a week after her birth. A week after? Yes. Ugh. So she, he was devastated. He felt she like he had a broodmare. Yes. So luckily, a friend did have another broodmare that had just foaled and had plenty of milk for two. Ugh. But her owner was completely devastated that he had lost his prize mare that he loved so much. I'm devastated. Yeah, this is <laughs> here we go. Every every good horse has a tragic beginning somewhere along the line. Yeah. So, the friend took her for about a year, and it wasn't until late in 1949 that he went to go see her, and saw her running around in the field, and was able to get over his sadness and take her back to the racetrack where he put her in her mom's stall and began race training. Oh, cool. He had the hopes that she would be able to enter her first race in early summer of 1950. This feels like bad timing given those dates that you just told me about the Korean War. Yeah. Or, I'm sorry, Korean conflict. (laughs) It wasn't. 
it wasn't good because on June 25th, 1950, North Korea invaded South Korea. Mm. That's ra- a bad day at the racetrack. That was a bad day at the race. They actually finished racing that day. Ooh. I learned that. The races were going on. North Koreans started dropping pamphlets of propaganda over the the city. Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, oh, maybe it's not serious. But it turned out to be a Oof. serious conflict. And so... They packed up from the racetrack and from their house in Seoul and started moving 200 miles south to Pasan. During this trip, he hooked his little red filly to a little carriage, loaded his family in it, and headed south. Mm -hmm. They came to a river crossing where there was a really long line for the ferry, and instead of waiting in the line, he headed a little further downriver, unhitched her, and used her to swim each member of the family across the river. Wow. So there was your cross training already. It was foreshadowing. Cross training. That's also like Oregon Trail, Korean War edition. Yes. Just, I didn't know that swim the family was one of the options, but that's wild. Yeah. So, and she wasn't a big horse. Yeah. Unlike our thoroughbreds today that are fairly tall in stature, she was often described as a Mongolian mare. Which means she probably Small had. Small and mighty. She was only thirteen hands. Wow. So that was a. She that's was a tiny. very strong pony. But there is a native pony to that region that's known for their strength and endurance and had been used for racing, but we don't know her direct. That's cool. And for breed. those of you who might not know, kind of measurements of horses, thirteen hands is is very short. Like I'm five four on a great tall day, but I would easily be able to see over. The back of a 13 hand horse yes easily quite, quite easily yeah quite easily yeah she'd be like chest she'd high. be tiny yeah she'd be small yeah but that didn't compare to the size of her heart i knew you were gonna say <laughs> something like that okay i believe it though given that she just swam a family to safety yes so it wasn't until 1952 that they found figured it was safe enough to return home to seoul mm-hmm So they made the journey back and her owner said, well, I have to find work. So he went back to the racetrack. Mm -hmm. However, he found that it had been converted to a landing field for the military. Okay, that's the worst day at the track. Right. So he was able to at least board the horse there. He was, however, able to find work using his little flame in the morning to transport rice from the rice fields to where it was being stored. So that became his occupation with her. However, tragedy struck because his sister had also gone to work in the rice paddy fields themselves. Mm-hmm. And one of her fellow workers had set off a landmine. Oh, no. Heap had died. It killed a few other workers. And his sister lost a leg. Oh, no. Yes. And it was very sad. And he had, But he had seen that other soldiers that had lost limbs in battle were provided with prosthetics. But they were really expensive for civilians but he was determined he didn't know how but he was going to get his sister a prosthetic leg okay and that day happened in october of 1952 it was october 26th when after doing his rice runs yep he brought her to the racetrack to breeze her because that was her favorite part (laughs) of the day she still had energy after hauling rice all day that's wild and after he breezed her he was approached by a lieutenant Eric Peterson of the, and this is long, but I'm going to get it right. You're going to get it. Of the Recoilless Rifle Platoon Anti-Tank Company, 5th Marine Regiment, 1st Marine Division. Okay. Lieutenant Peterson was at the track that day looking for a horse. He had approached his higher command and asked them to allow him to bring a horse into camp to help them transport their recoilless rifles. Okay. Command said, eh, well, you can if you want to, but you have to spend your own money. Mm-hmm. So he approached our owner and offered him $250 for his little red mare. Was that enough for the prosthetic? It was. Oh. So heartbroken as he was, he did sell his little flame in the morning to Lieutenant Peterson. Okay. Now, Lieutenant Peterson was trying to solve a legitimate problem that the unit had. The recoilless rifle was required in the type of fighting they were doing in the Korean War. Because of the peace zones the UN had set up, 
the enemy was often hiding behind them. So they needed a precise weapon that could travel long distances. However, because of the blowback when that gun was fired, these were 75 millimeter shells, the blowback was so powerful that they couldn't conceal the guns. Instead, they had to use it and they could only fire it a few times and then they had to pack, unpack, pack it down and move it to a different location gotcha. before the enemy could strike because gotcha. they were the second they fired it, they knew where it was. Yep. It was known to disintegrate wooden crates if they put stacked them behind the gun. Wow. But at six feet long, over six feet long, and oh, well over 100 pounds, it took up to four Marines to move this gun. Oh, crazy. It had the gun itself, it had a tripod, and each shell, they were 75 millimeter shells, weighed 24 pounds. Holy Christmas. So it was a big undertaking, and part of the warfare was taking out the roads that went through the mountains. Sure. So you had rugged terrain, a big gun that took a lot of manpower, and Lieutenant Peterson, who was familiar with horses, felt like a horse could carry that gun and truly help his regiment. The ultimate all-terrain vehicle. The ultimate all-terrain vehicle. So he brought her home. He put her on a trailer, brought her back to camp where he was welcomed by his Marines. And one of them shouted out that they should call her Reckless, which was the nickname for the recoilless rifle. Oh, that's So they were the Reckless Rifle Platoon. Gotcha. And they, they named her Reckless. That's very fitting. He appointed Technical Sergeant joe latham as her trainer and charged him with taking care of her they built her a bunker up to standards fenced off a small paddock and began desensitizing her and conditioning her for the job that she was going to do i fully assume by the way that she was named sergeant reckless because she just was reckless (laughs) no she did she was quite spirited as uh i'm gonna tell you okay and she was actually, once she got acclimated to camp, allowed to roam freely like all the other Marines. Oh, cool. Her favorite spot was the dining hall. She's like hall. a pony at, at Assateague. Yeah, when they say, when you go camping at Assateague They're Island. bears without, without claws. Claws or, or, or sharp, sharp teeth. teeth. <laughs> but yes, because you're told to hide your, your coolers food. and not keep food in your tent because the horses will go in and get it. So yes. That's great. That is exactly, exactly what happened. So they gave her free roam of camp. She started going to the dining hall. They learned that she would happily eat scrambled eggs and bacon. (laughs) She learned to drink coffee. Oh, my gosh. She would eat loaves of bread that they'd put jelly on. And because this was a sort of, it was a condoned thing, but they were supposed to use their own money, they had to take up a collection to buy her real food. Food. Okay. So of like barley and sorghum Mm -hmm. that they could actually feed her. But she was perfectly happy with Hershey bars and Coca-Cola as well. She was also known That's to... That's a Marine. Yes. And she would go into their tents. During the cold Korean winters, they would let her in their tent to cozy up to the fire. Oh, that's funny. But she was also known to raid their tents. <laughs> um, if somebody had cookies or anything hiding... Gone. There was one story that she ransacked a bunk looking for cookies that he had bought for that's himself. hilarious. So yeah, she was, she was quite the character, but she truly blended in with the Marines. She didn't seem to want for other equine contact... And happily went into training. So Joe Latham had to teach her to run for cover. but So he would yell incoming and taught her to run to her bunker. He also taught her to kneel down and lay down for cover. Holy cow. So she would get in the trenches and lay down. That's a... I'm just imagining that in my head and that's crazy. There was one story where she kind of showed up to another platoon and they knew that you know, the other one had the horse and they didn't and they kind of welcomed her and then they took enemy fire and she just went down in the bunker and laid down for protection in the trench and they threw her flat their flak jackets on her to protect her because they knew how valuable she was. That is, first of all, so much smarter than any of our horses, though, because they just run around like crazy. They'd be just like, oh, my God. Yes, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, she did have a few run-ins with the barbed wire, which was all they had to contain her. But eventually they taught her how to step over it because it would be on the battlefield and to not trip up communication wires. Oh, wow. They actually used her to string communication line. That makes sense. As well. That does make sense. The only thing that she was really not a fan of was the farrier. She did not like having shoes put on. There were multiple stories of her giving a few blacksmiths a run for their money and some of them just straight up refused to shoe her. 
So she was a little spitfire. Touch reckless. A touch reckless. Definitely a touch reckless uh, for that. (laughs) So in her first battle, she, because all the preparation that you could do doesn't prepare you for actually taking enemy fire. Sure. And it was described that she was loaded down with eight shells, yeah, each at 24 pounds apiece in the gun. And the first time they took enemy fire, she did get upset. She reacted. She wanted to run, but she was able to be controlled by her Marines. By the second time, she just flinched. And by the third time, she was doing her job as if absolutely nothing had happened. This is the smartest horse alive. It, Sorry to clever Hans, but this one That's might true. Be that's true. I like to pick the ones that did remarkable things. Yeah. But I mean, from personal experience, when I got caught in that lightning storm and almost died... The first boom of thunder was a big reaction. The second one was a little one. And the third one, which is where I almost got struck by lightning when it hit the tree that was directly next to me, um, I didn't die. And that was pretty much because the horse had already gotten used to it. My own little red Your flame. own little red. My only little she just has one sock instead of That's true. Three. She only has one. Oh, well, can't have it all. That's right. But she could play her in the movie. You could just call her flame. They do a movie. I nominate yeah. Callie. That she'd be perfect. A little she, tall. Yeah, but that's okay. Close enough. They don't know. Yeah, exactly. That's fine. All right. Passable. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. But the biggest battle, and it was one of the biggest battles of the Korean War, was the Battle for Outpost Vegas. Okay. It was a three day battle between the Marines and the Chinese. She served by transporting ammo up the hill to the front lines, and then they would strap wounded soldiers to her and she would bring them back down the hill she made over 50 trips in one day which totaled over 35 miles holy and about halfway through her marine that would usually guide her had to be called for other service because they were they were shorthanded and everybody was needed at a different post and she continued to head directly into the line of fire to deliver her munitions so they could keep firing back she kept them stocked the entire time so Holy much, cow. So much so that one of the guns actually started to melt from how many times it was fired that day. The gun? Yes. And it was said that she was the only reason they were able to keep fighting. And one of the soldiers described how it was a sight to see this like dinosaur-like form over the hill through the smoke that was just reckless hiking back and forth. And they'd see her come over the ridge and every time... She would she would make her trip she and go back. She was bringing the ammo. They even said, and this made me cry about eighteen times every time I read. I cried like fifteen times doing this research. <laughs> but one of them, he was like, there had to be an angel riding her that day because she managed to get to and from safely. Wow. She only sustained a sh- shrapnel wound over her left eye and a small one on her flank, but other than that, she was unscathed. And the next day, she went and did it again. Oh my gosh. They put her they put her in her paddock at the end of the day. She laid down in a bunker. She slept. She got up. She was tired, but she went right back to work. Well, you know what they say about Marines? They're trained to run into fire, not away from And it. that was so, actually used to describe her in more than one occasion that she was truly That's a Marine. Truly a Marine. Shortly thereafter, the war did the fighting did come to an end and they started peace talks. She was still in Korea, and now the question became, what's what's going to happen? Sure. Technically, Lieutenant Peterson still owned a portion of her. Mm-hmm. He had been transferred, but he didn't give up sole ownership, but said that she needed to stay with his platoon because they needed her. Sure. But he wanted, and he would happily sign over ownership as long as she was brought back to the United States. Gotcha. But there was more work to be done in Korea, in camp, in the years following the war, so she was there for a while. There's one story where a newer recruit was in camp, and she would was notorious for sneaking up behind people and just joining conversations. And she because she talks too. Well, she did. There, there was a story about a poker game that she just inserted herself into the poker game, and she drew a royal flush. No, but she did eat most of the pot she ate about 30 poker chips oh my God. which was her other thing what were they using for poker chips they said that they were plastic i actually are they potato did. chips no but she apparently did eat quite a few inorganic things she had the big blind she ate she ate an australian hat once oh my gosh uh she was known to eat her blankets so she yeah she was 
a little reckless she with could that. be on an episode of my strange addiction yeah so <laughs> anyway she she's um she had snuck up behind this new new guy and nipped him on the back of the neck and he turned around and was they was like why am i giving my part of my pay to feed this old nag and he was threatened told that she outranks him and he should not disrespect her and any more disrespect would result in a court martial that's amazing so i thought that was pretty interesting by the time the war ended she had received some press at home Mm -hmm. there was an article in the saturday evening post that started winning the hearts and minds of many americans so people were enticed by the story and they wanted to bring her home the military and all its infamous bureaucracy had trouble justifying her transport back so it kind of fell on the public to raise money to bring her back so eventually an executive for the pacific transport lines offered to transport her for free from korea back to san francisco okay when she arrived in 1949 they gave her a brand new blanket they Mm -hmm. put sergeant stripes on it and officially made her a sergeant in the U.S. Marines. Oh, that's cool. So what was she before? A corporal. Gotcha. So she she was corporal reckless. She was corporal reckless. reckless. Which is really a mouthful. Exactly. (laughs) And so she was officially made sergeant in 1949. She also received more awards. She was awarded two Purple Hearts, a Marine Corps Good Conduct Medal, a Presidential Unit Citation with Bronze Star, the National Defense Service Medal, a Korean Service Medal, the United Nations Korea Medal, a Navy Unit Commendation, and a Republic of Korea Presidential Unit Citation. She was stabled at Camp Pendleton, where she lived out the rest of her days. I've been there. Yeah, you did. You can't, you stayed there I did. once for a vacation, didn't you? I did indeed. There she was bred four times. She had three cults in a filly. And she lived a relatively peaceful life when she passed away in 1968. Wow. So she lived to be about 20, which... That's not a bad, bad life for a legitimate war horse. A real, true... Like a battle-tested war horse. War horse. There are three statues that commemorate Sergeant Reckless in the United States. One is at the National Museum of the Marine Corps in Quantico, Virginia. The other is at Camp Pendleton. And there is another one at the Kentucky Horse Park that was unveiled in 2018. Oh, cool. We've been there, too. Yes, we have. And we definitely saw it because we were there in 2019 for the Retired Race Horse Project. And it's it's there. And interestingly enough, it was inspired by the book that I listened to as part of the research. That statue. Because one of the board members listened to the author, Robin Hutton, who wrote Sergeant Reckless, America's War Horse. Highly recommend. We'll put a link on our website. She spoke in an event and one of the board members was like how do we not know about this and they raised the money to put a statue there oh that the kentucky horse park shouldn't just be about racehorses that can be the end of the of the disney movie like balto but for it's true she is she's a she's a balto but she is korean war vet balto yes no it's it's true yeah just less of a and i did a rod yeah her i did a rod was i think a little uh probably scary mountain yeah because people were shooting at her that's fair that's true balto didn't run through bullets no no it's very fair he did not that was a great story excellent story perfect Thanks. for veterans day i feel like i butchered it i mean no disrespect if and anything yeah i don't this was not you no. weren't disrespectful okay I not at all i didn't mean to be no okay that's a great story it's a great story to tell around Veterans Day. Yes. Yeah. I think more people should know about it. It seems to, it was very popular and then it kind of dipped down. It wasn't until the book came out in 2015 that she regained popularity. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened to me. Actually, not me, but in the story that I researched too, it seems as though it used to be a pretty widely known thing, but just over time it loses kind of teeth. Yeah. It just kind of fades to time, which is really sad because a horse like Sergeant Reckless or the lady that I'm going to talk about in a minute should totally be remembered up there with some of the best. Well, I guess that's what we're doing here. That is. We're trying. We're trying. We're trying. We're trying to bring these stories back. That's right. Well, that was a great story, Lisa. Well, thank you. Yeah. All right. 
Well, I have a story for you. I can't wait to hear yours. Cool. So I am going to tell you the story of Nan Aspinwall Gable. You probably don't know her name because she's relatively unfamiliar or was completely unfamiliar to me when I started looking into this, which was all inspired by a random Facebook post that I saw. I saw a picture of this woman one day and I saw that the caption said that she was the first woman to ride solo across North America on a thoroughbred. Wow. And I was like immediately intrigued but knew nothing about this woman. So I had to go digging through old newspaper articles, predominantly the Nebraska History Museum was a bit of a resource for me as well. And there was a thesis put together by a woman named Mary Higginbotham, something like that. Okay. Higginbotham, sorry. That's the book you left in my car. That is the book that I left in your car. Here is what's interesting. That thesis that I ordered on Amazon because it was like 100 pages long to read for this led the Long Riders Guild Association to confirm that in 1910 to 1911, Nan Asmawal Gable was the first woman to ride across North America from San Francisco to New York solo. So this was recently confirmed. Okay. Like within the past 20-ish years, I'd say. Okay. I think the research came out in the early 2000s. I'd have to check the book. You'd have to go to your car. I could go to my car. But that's okay. I I could read the book and find out. But that's okay. So yeah, this was a time kind of well after the development of the Transcontinental Railroad that was completed in 1860, I believe. So it was still after that, but early enough in the invention of the automobile that it wasn't super common. It was more for the the wealthy class. And interestingly enough, it was very much a time well before television and really at the dawn of radio right? in the early 1910s. So by and large, people got their information from newspapers and their entertainment often came in the form of traveling vaudeville shows. Vaudeville. Which were really popular. Buffalo Bill Cody, Annie Oakley were a few of those mm-hmm. that became pretty prominent names on, on the vaudeville circuit. That is how Nan actually became a cowgirl. Okay. So let me, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the background of Nan's life, her start as a vaudeville showgirl, and transition into her character, the Montana girl. I'm going to tell you a little bit about how the ride came to be, how she found her horse or how she got a horse, what she decided for her mount on her cross country ride. And then I'll tell you a little bit about the the details of her cross country ride. So Nan Jean Aspinwall was born on February 2nd, 1880. February 2nd is Groundhog's Day. It also happens to be my grandmother's birthday. So that's kind of cool. She shares a birthday with with this lady, Nan Aspenwall. She was born in New York to parents from, her father was from Brookfield, Massachusetts, and her mother was actually from Bern, Switzerland. And they were a pretty devout Christian scientist family. And shortly after Nan was born, they moved the family from the East Coast to Liberty, Nebraska, which has a population of 74 as of 2017. Wow. So really not a big town. No. And it was there that Nan's father kept a general store, but they otherwise led a, a very quiet life. Nan uh, Nan attended school, and that was kind of it. There really wasn't much about the details of their, their family life, but it was very much known that Nan was the daughter of a general storekeeper. I'm very much picturing like Nellie Olson oh, yeah. from Little House on the Prairie. You like love Little she's House the, on the Prairie. She's the, the, the storekeeper's daughter who... Right. You know, that is the one general store in town. But opportunity calls. And as vaudeville entertainment became a little bit more available and certainly known in those parts of of the country, Nan actually joined a performing a traveling troupe as, brace herself, as as, as an exotic dancer. She performed under the name Princess Omeni, but... This was probably very different than what we think of when we hear exotic dancers, because I'm sure your mind instantly goes to like strip club. No, my, no, no. Actually, quite frankly, when you mention Wild Bill, Annie Oakley, 
and exotic dancer, my brain goes straight to musical theater, and I am thinking Annie Get Your Gun and the plot of Gypsy. You're thinking Ethel Merman. Immediately. I am thinking. I am thinking Ethel Merman. That Absolutely, tracks. because you have the traveling show, and then you have Gypsy, where she was supposed to be a vaudeville star, and then ends up as a burlesque dancer. Oh so my gosh, I didn't even think of that. So it's Gypsy in you reverse fe- because you fell asleep. I did during that movie. No matter how many times I've tried. to The only watch thing it. that I know is sing out Louise. Sing out, Louise, sing out. You're right. <laughs> That's all. So anyways, so Nana joined this troupe and she was deeply religious and had also married her husband, Frank Gable, who was a, fo- a fellow vaudeville actor who was a roping and lariat expert. So whether it was her faith or a marriage to Frank, she kind of had a change of heart about the whole exotic dancer It is gypsy in thing. reverse. It is Gypsy in reverse. So she became a bit more conservative character. And in 1906, she debuted as the Montana girl with Buffalo Bill and Pawnee Bill's traveling troops. So she and Frank got pretty well known. And she was actually quoted as being, Nan recalled to an Associated Press reporter, I was the highest paid star in the troupe at $35 a week for the Wild West and Oriental parts of the show. Wow. So she was the highest paid actor for her Montana girl character. And this is what gets interesting. She basically sold herself as the Montana girl so convincingly that she developed a whole backstory that she grew up riding horses on her father's ranch in Montana. She she tricked herself out wearing all the typical Western gear, a divided skirt, boots, a silk or flannel shirt, a big Stetson hat, and she had long blonde wavy hair. Uh, So this kind of backstory was so well told that when she ended up going on a ride, the newspapers that reported on it often believed this. I mean, that is becoming your character. That's it's like method very, acting, It's right? method acting on a deeper <laughs> level. But it's also kind of interesting because she, Nan Aspinwall is very much proof that at this time, cowgirls did not need to be born. They could very much be created out of thin air. If you knew how to work a gun, a rope, ride a horse you could pass as a cowgirl, especially if you sold it the way that she did. I mean, I, I don't want to go down a tangent, but I feel like the more I learn about history, you know, over a hundred years ago, it sounds like things weren't all that different from today. Like no. we have technology, but it's the same kind of allure. Yeah, for sure. So here's what's interesting. Frank and Nan spent a couple of years on the road with Buffalo Bill and Pawnee Bill, but they eventually broke out and made their own show gables road show in 1910 which is the year that she went on her ride so Hmm. let's talk about how this ride came about it was either a brilliant publicity stunt and there is some some suggestion by newspaper articles that reference that nan was in talks with a magazine to be paid for the ride but i think those talks kind of broke down there's really three options that's number one option two is that Frank and Nan may have been looking for a way to just publicize themselves when they came up with the idea of, hey, you know how to ride a horse really well. Let's string together some shows and we'll have you ride coast to coast. Or the last option, number three, and perhaps the most interesting, is that this possibly could have been a bet between friends, that friend possible, possibly being Buffalo Bill. That's pretty cool. So this might have came about from just a spiteful bet with friends that you couldn't ride across country between Buffalo Bill and Nana. I mean, I don't want to put words in other people's mouths, but if you were working for Buffalo Bill and then you went out on your own, maybe it was a bet and you also do need publicity to go out on your own. So that was how the, the ride sort of came about. It was either option one, two, or three. Pick your own adventure, but... She went on this thing. She she was determined to ride coast to coast, but she needed a horse. This is the article that I found from the Los Angeles Herald about just kind of Nan and how she settled on on a thoroughbred. It says, Miss Aspinwall is an experienced horsewoman, not only on the range, but also with the, quote, Wild West shows. She says she has no fear of accident to herself on the ride, but desires to secure a horse that will be able to stand the trip without mishap. 
She says, if I do not get the right kind of a horse soon, said Miss Aspinwall yesterday at the Lancashire, I will send to my father's ranch in Montana and have one sent from me there. Of course, on a trip like this, I must have the best animal procurable, one that will make the trip and still look well when I arrive in New York. Along the route, if people are interested in my stunt, I will give riding exhibitions. I would have issued riding challenges to women along the way if it were not for the fact that I am just recovering from a broken leg, which prohibits any such thing. However, I am always willing to meet any of my sex in a roping contest and will issue challenges to that effect while en route. Miss Aspenwall is only 24 years old. She was actually 30 and married at the time, mm-hmm. but has lived in the saddle practically all her life. So this this article is just kind of proof of the tall tales that were spun by her and that she continued to spin as like, well, if I don't get a horse, I'll go get one at dad's at, ranch, at, at dad's own. general store in Liberty, Nebraska. My, my, in other words, my imaginary ranch in, in Montana. I mean, if that's not a bluff, I I don't know what one is. I mean, think about all the things that we could do without the internet. Now you can find about anything about anybody. But then you just had to believe the newspaper. Yes. So she ended up settling on a thoroughbred named Lady Ellen. And I wasn't able to figure out what farm she was from or where she procured Lady Ellen. I am assuming it was from California, kind of native to the area. She settled on a thoroughbred and she was very committed to the that that choice, even though Love it. others suggested to look at different breeds, different different types of a horse, I guess. So she set out on this epic ride. So on September 1st, 1910, Nan Aspinwall, along with Lady Ellen, her dog, which was a collie, her, and her gun, this was from a newspaper article. What was the gun's name? I don't know. Oh. Winchester. Oh, cute. <laughs> Remington. <Yeah. laughs> they left from the San Francisco Chronicle building in downtown San Francisco. That is 609 Market Street. She left from there carrying a letter for San Francisco from San Francisco Mayor Patrick H. McCarthy to be delivered to the mayor of New York City, William J. Gaynor, on her arrival. The world's slowest delivery of mail because yeah. it would take her 310 days. I hope there was nothing there. pressing in that letter. Probably not. Just, no. hey, is this girl still alive? Yeah. Did she make it? <laughs> Confirm. <laughs> yeah. Please call me on your new telephone. <laughs> right. Exactly. So here's what else is interesting. This, her trip predates so much of what we know today as far as interstate and road infrastructure. Things like bridges hadn't been oh. built. Yeah. How so, did she get to Manhattan? So- I'll get there. Oh. So she actually, with her trip predating the construction of both the Golden Gate Bridge and the Oakland Bay Bridge in the 1930s, Nan started making her way around the Bay Area. If you've ever looked at a map of San Francisco, it is a peninsula. And she left from the absolute tippy point of the San Francisco Peninsula in downtown and had to go all the way around the San, the San Jose Bay and the San Francisco Bay area down okay. to San Jose and up to Sacramento. So the extra mileage I was able to track down, they estimate that her journey took over 4,000 miles, was severely more than a modern route today that we could probably make in like 2,500 miles. Right. Same thing, but because of bridges tunnels and interstate systems that's crazy yep so let me just scroll an airplane where yeah or an airplane where you can just totally cut that out so the sacramento union published an article on september 4th 1910 as nan continued passing through the bay area it claims she departed San san francisco amid the cheers of an admiring throng and the details of her her fictional backstory were explained very similarly to the the other article so nan left san francisco with only the essential supplies refusing to take extras her husband actually rode ahead by train to scout the route and advertise her exhibitions. Because even though she was in the saddle for over 300 days, she left in, in September 1910 and arrived in early July 1911. I think she only rode something like 180 of those days. I think okay. there was some rest days in between. Okay, that makes sense. And she did all these shows to 
kind of get her name out, get the, the story out about the trip. So this is what else I thought was really interesting. There was little in the way of maps or travel directions. You don't have Google Maps. Speaking of the like, internet, you don't, you can't just pop up that route. You, you'd have to take a compass? map and a, a compass. A compass and a prayer. <laughs> yeah, a, a wing and a prayer. So because there was very little in the way of map or travel directions, Nan primarily followed the Western Pacific rail lines with really good success until she ran into her first bit of trouble in Nevada. And in Nevada, she followed a prospector's trail that she thought was a shortcut. She ended up getting disoriented and spent several days lost in the wilderness of Nevada with no food, no water, no place to sleep. She apparently had to walk Lady Ellen up and down many hills and extreme crossings that were just treacherous. But they ended up getting out and she fully credited Lady Ellen for leading to her kind of getting her to safety after a few, few very uncomfortable days. Well, horses do know where they're going most of the time. Yes. There was, and this is what I thought was cool because so much of her journey I was able to track through newspaper clippings as she passed through these little towns. So she crossed the Nevada border into Utah shortly prior to October 31st where the Salt Lake Tribune told the story of her getting lost in the mountains. And it says, Finally she reached Proctor almost dead from exhaustion. Her shoes were worn from her feet and bleeding and fainting. She stumbled into town. When she arrived in Salt Lake, she declared she presented a sorry spectacle. But she went to church the following day, decked out head to toe like she was headed for a Western Pleasure show. All right. That's <laughs> so a she made a, a quick recovery. So she was traveling west to east during some of the worst weather yeah, that we have in the States. Trip? I don't know why she decided to, but she went through the Rocky Mountains, through the Tennessee Pass in December 1910 near Mitchell, Colorado. This is funny because I don't think it's far from that stretch of the Rocky Mountains that's like totally lawless. You know that little area? There's a there's like a corner, I think, I don't think I'm making this up. There's a corner of Colorado no that's that's talking. allegedly lawless because it's just Rocky Mountains and there's nobody there. Okay. This is a thing. I'm pretty sure it's a thing. So she said she went as far to shoot up the town just for the fun of it. I think she basically shot up a ghost town. So she often slept in stalls or fields along the way and she said this when she reached Denver. Talk about Western chivalry. There's no such thing. Why in one place I felt so bad that I rode through the town shooting off my revolver just for deviltry. At another place I had to send several bullets into a door before they would come out and take care of me. Which is a hell of a way to demand for help. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think... I. Well, yeah, no, that, that that's not like being sweet as pie and asking for help. No. That's for sure. And she very much played down her... The fact that she was married, the fact that she was getting help along the way. There was actually a recorded conversation between Nan and a Denver Post reporter that says, Miss Aspinwall is a bundle of grit and determination, such as is seldom found in femininity. The reporter asks, how are you regarded by men on the trip? Oh, all right. In many places, they seemed afraid of me. No kidding. We just <laughs> shot up their door. <laughs> Did you leave a suitor behind? Who, me? No, she replied. Then you're not in love, she says, only with that mare of mine. <laughs> I'm sure her husband loved that one. <laughs> right? Like, that, that's a great reference here. She also made a stop in her former hometown of Liberty, Nebraska in February of 1911. And she continued from Nebraska to Missouri through Kansas City in late March and on to St. Louis in early April. In St. Louis, a newspaper asked Nan about her choice for a mount in the journey, and she was totally steadfast in her choice of a thoroughbred and seemed determined to prove everybody wrong that she could do this with a single horse and that that horse was a thoroughbred. She said, it was Lady Ellen that saved my life. When I was getting ready for the ride, everyone told me I wanted a bronc. I knew better. I wanted a thoroughbred. An English magazine had negotiated with me to make the ride, but when I asked them to stake me at least the price for the horse, they got cold feet. But I wasn't going to be a piker, so I started my own book, and I am going to finish the trip. Wow. So there was some roots to the the allegation that it was a bit of a publicity stunt, but she was off on her own. It kind of seemed 
at times almost a little bitter about it, which I would be too, because yeah. if you're committing to do this thing and you don't get the backing, well, what the heck? So Nan worked her way from April and May through St. Louis, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, and finally got to Pennsylvania and New Jersey by June of 1911. At this point, Nan had covered more than 2,500 miles and was reaching a point of physical and emotional exhaustion, as anybody would. There was an article in uh, a Pittsburgh newspaper. The headline is, Ready to Quit Long Ride says Nan J. Aspinwall, the cowboy girl who is riding from San Francisco to New York on horseback with a letter from Mayor P.H. McCarthy of San Francisco to Mayor Gaynor of New York, has arrived here exhausted. The quote from Nan says, I wish Mayor Gaynor would jump on a horse and meet me halfway. (laughs) I am an idiot for undertaking this trip and I'd like to quit right here. That's, that's, well, I feel like just about any horse person at some point has had that "Mm, epiphany i agree maybe this wasn't the best idea well and if if history made anything clear it is that nan aspinwall was no quitter she saw this through the there was a an article in the pittsburgh chronicle that says i was told before i started out on this trip that i should do something startling if i wanted to get my name in the papers and i am getting it all right absolutely so she did it and that was from june of 1911 in that that newspaper article so it took her another 30 days from pittsburgh to travel through all of pennsylvania and new jersey but on july 8th 1911 after a ferry ride from new jersey because again this predates most of the bridges that we would have had in manhattan right so it was truly an island no like lincoln tunnel i think she worked her way from perth amboy to the city Something okay. like that. I think it was an actual like barge. This also means that she she probably crossed like the Delaware from Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Like did she like Washington cross the Delaware? Herself? She might have. I don't know. I don't know about that, but she very well may have. And I don't know about the the creation of those bridges. But we do know just from tubing that parts of the Delaware are easily yeah you horse could cross crossable. that on a horse easily right horse crossable. Yes. So she ended up arriving to City Hall in Manhattan on July 8, 1911, with the letter in her hand from the San Francisco mayor to deliver to Mayor Gaynor, who conveniently wasn't available, so he sent his secretary to retrieve this. That's... Which I find to be a touch of a I, I mean, I guess maybe she was out of ammo, so she didn't shoot her way into yeah, exactly. City Hall. So she arrived in downtown Manhattan on Lady Ellen, uh, decked out in her trademark western attire a red silk scarf a stetson split skirt handed off her letter and the new york times had this great article that kind of described this the scene when she arrived and it says the horseback rider delivered the missive to secretary robert a adamson who blushingly welcomed the fair rider to the city he told her to make herself at home and have a good time until she was ready to go to atlantic city where she will be one of the features of the elks annual convention my favorite part thereupon while the crowd cheered miss aspenwall flicked her quirt doffed her sombrero and galloped off in a most approved western fashion with a horde of urchins at the heels of her steed that's the best total picture it really does i did have to google the word quirt though because i had you didn't i don't know i knew i know what it is but i needed to make sure because i was like it's the little flappy smacky thing that you you could have asked me i do why would i here it sounds weird it does i mean i'm not gonna it lie. sounds like something you don't want to say out loud that's another segment we can do weird oh, horse that's words one. that don't mean i what you think love they it mean. i can do that because i can keep that bowl supplied with options i can keep that absolutely funded with things that i hear you say that i'm like i don't understand what that is oh it could be like an auntie may will be like here's a book you're yes. gonna write down all the things you don't understand that's right and then I'll sit down and I'll tell you what they we mean. We can use the new notebook for that. Oh my gosh, I'm there dedicating a space for it. Perfect. Exactly. So Nan's life after the ride, her road kind of ended rather, I don't know, unspectacularly. She got a couple of awards from the Police Gazette who reported on her journey, but she otherwise spent a pretty quiet 
life after her ride. She did continue to travel with her husband, Frank, afterwards. So they had a couple decades of continuing their their vaudeville act in towns in towns and theaters all over the country they started out on the east coast since nan had ended her ride here and eventually worked their way back to the west around spokane and seattle washington which is where nan would eventually settle down following frank's death in 1929 Mm. so she afterwards had also earned the nickname two gun nan for her show and In 1942, her story was actually broadcast on Death Valley Days, a Western radio program and later a television anthology series. And in 1958, a then 78-year-old Nan was invited to serve as a consultant on the Death Valley Days television series that ran from 1952 to 1970 for an episode loosely based on her life titled Two Gun Nan. Nice. So there is a TV episode of Death Valley Days loosely based around her. Sadly, her husband Frank died in 1929. She did a few shows afterwards during the summer, but during the summer of 1931, she'd retired from performing and donated Frank's shooting equipment to the San Juan Basin Rifle Rifle and Pistol Club in Durango, Colorado. So she really led a pretty quiet life after she retired from vaudeville she never ended up having any children of her own and was deeply committed to her christian scientist faith she died on october 24th 1964 and most ironically according to her death certificate nan was a housewife for all her life oh okay which is so far from being the first person to ride solo, the first woman to ride solo across america she was a a master of recreating herself Every day. Yeah, she could reinvent herself right up until the end. Yeah. Yeah. That's an inspiring story. It is. She was a master, I don't want to say character manipulator, but she kind of was because she definitely used that to her advantage. But again, this is somebody who in a few articles afterwards, I saw that she was at one point very widely known. Right. She was not, I I didn't know her. I was inspired by a random facebook post that somebody had a photo of her on lady ellen and said this is the woman who first rode across america solo yeah and i don't know how there isn't a movie like a good road trip blows my mind travel movie about this blows my mind a movie blows my mind that we have hidalgo and all of these other movies like very sappy horse stories and then we actually have a kind of gritty coming of age story because she was 31, by the way, when she did that. Well, or she was 24. Or she was 24, she, according to the I'm newspaper article. Yeah, right. Well. But And not married. So who knows? Maybe she had a couple of other suitors along the way. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe I'm, Lady Ellen had that, a couple, too. That doesn't go with the whole Christian scientist. No, I don't think so. Christian thing. But we can speculate all we want. But. but it is very interesting. She definitely led an incredibly interesting life. And she's been a little bit forgotten to time. So well, yeah. I guess that's, that's our... That's what our, we do inadvertent mission here yes. is to bring these stories that are forgotten to time back, back to, to life back to life yeah especially if they involve horses That's because right. they again i can say my favorite quote can i say it what about how no species has contributed more oh, yeah. to the advancement of mankind no it's very horse. true i'm gonna try and work that in, in very any, true. every episode you're welcome very true should we play our game to round oh, this out yes absolutely okay you're gonna give me a thing yeah what was I going to give you? I had a thought for something. Megan's going to name something and I have to play some sort of six degrees of separation to relate it to horses in okay. one way or another. I figured I'd explain um, the game. Okay. How about whiskey? We are drinking whiskey. We are drinking whiskey. Well, whiskey is usually made from grains like corn, yep. barley, rye. And yep. those are all things that you could feed a horse. Sergeant Reckless oh, was fed well, barley. Oh wow! Yeah, the walked right into this. Yeah, wow. you kind of did. That was that was a little a little. That's like a, not even a degree of separation. Ugh. But interestingly enough, like moonshiners could buy sweet feed used for horses and use that to make <laughs> moonshine. Horse shine. <laughs> you can literally make moonshine from sweet feed. I I hear tell about it. That's pretty good. Maybe well, I was going to say that. Because I thought about it too. I was going to say that horses probably would have been used in the production or collection or planting or 
farming in general of of any of those crops at some point. Oh, absolutely. And the transport because they were our cars. Yep. I'm sure bootleggers oh, used them point. during Prohibition before cars were super prevalent. That would be a great episode. Can we find a bootlegger horse? We can look for it. Although, isn't isn't like NASCAR the like have roots in bootlegging? Well, yeah, but that's that. Yes, but there had to be horses involved too. Yeah, well, that's what. Think. No, that you're not wrong because NASCAR's roots are basically that the moonshine producers souped up their cars so that they could outrun outrun the police. Right. So, and I'm sure at one point the police were on horses, and so yeah. were the yeah. people. You're not wrong. It's a good way to end it. That is a good way to end it. Good way to end it. So that's our game, by the way. If you're new here, we play a little game at the end of every episode, and we try to play a six degrees of separation between that item and some way that the horse would have contributed to its production creation. Or Right. So if you see a horse, thank a horse. That's right. That's right. Good way to end it today. Yes, I'm going to finish this drink. Let's go. It's delicious. Cheers to to the the horse. horse. That's right. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on episode four of history and the horse.com. <laughs> <laughs>